title of that last song that we sang is, is apt because the title of the last song we sang is also the title of the book that we now turn to, the book of Revelation. I'd like to ask you to turn with me. Oh, turn to the book of Revelation while we're releasing the kids. We're doing a Christmas program practice this morning, so uh, if you're a kid K through 5th grade that wants to be a part of... Uh, of um, the children's program or is curious about it at all, you can go with, they're right there in the back. Lambrights are right there in the back. And uh, you can go with them and get ready for the Christmas program. And while they're getting out, I just want to say thank you uh, for the kindnesses that so many of you have shown with regard to Pastor Appreciation Month, um, so many thoughtful gifts. I, I just can't say enough about it. I, I even, somebody thought to get me a commentary on Revelation. There's been food and kindnesses and uh, gifts and cards and nice words. And, you know, it sure is appreciated. And uh, I want to thank you for praying for Passion for Christ Conference. Uh, seem fruitful. I pray about, by the way, I'm not subtweeting you. You don't need to get me a Pastor Appreciation Month gift. Please don't, don't take that as that. <laughs> Okay, there was like a dozen or 15 people that thought of it, probably heard it on the radio and did, that's fine. Don't, don't run out and get me a pastor appreciation gift. I just want to say thank you because I know, I know how loved we are. It's, it's evident, and it means a lot in word and deed, and I wanted to say that. Um, and I was right in the middle of preparation, and a brother met me this week and said, hey, I want to give you this commentary on Revelation. It was a really good commentary on Revelation, so I appreciate that. I also want to thank you for praying for Passion for Christ conference last weekend that I was at. Um, it seemed fruitful, and... Uh, you know, would ask you to pray about going next year if you're a single young adult. I think it's really helpful. At ages about 18 to 38 were there as single young adults and was able to, to really interact and, and see God move in their lives. And it's a wonderful, wonderful October event. Uh, why, don't we just, why don't we just pray together now pastorally and then dive into Revelation. So would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for the way that you encourage pastors and elders. Thank you for seeing us through a uh, a fruitful weekend last weekend, and I pray for the, for the young adults that are single that, that went to that event, that have desires in their hearts and hopes and dreams. I pray you'd help them and help us to be faithful to you as we minister to those that are single. We pray for safe, free, and moral elections as we face the general election this Tuesday. We offer continued prayers for the family of Mrs. Alberta Fever and for the family of Kathy Shue as I officiated her services yesterday. We pray in this season for wellness amongst our friends and in our congregation. And we pray for our missionaries, such as Bob and Mary Fictinger, with their work to the continent of Africa, or Elizabeth Fox with Global Encounters, who has work in Myanmar that I met last weekend. I'd like to ask you to bless their work and all the missionaries that are trying to take the gospel to people internationally. Help us in our work as we seek to take the gospel not only to ourselves, but to those that need to be converted in our highways and byways, in our towns, in our cities, in our states. We pray, Lord, and ask your blessing on our members as we approach a members' meeting next Sunday night at 5 o'clock, a meeting where we'll consider the faithfulness that we need to have to you in your budget and, and discipline and in membership. We ask that you bless our offerings today as we take them at the end of the service. And, Lord, last but not least, we didn't plan to begin the book of Revelation the Sunday before a general election, but you've seen fit to start it on this first day of November 2020 for our congregation, and I pray you bless it to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, the prologue, as it's called. This book reveals much about Christ, especially in the very first chapter. Really, it might be said it's Christ's book. And for those of you that don't like books much, it's filled with images. It's um, more like a picture book than a puzzle book, to quote one commentator. So if, if that describes you, this is a book for you. This first passage that we're going to read and preach through this morning tells us what kind of book that it is in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1. tells us what kind of people we are in verses 4 to 6 of chapter 1. And what kind of return it will be in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 1. So, simply, this section is Christ's book for Christ's people until Christ returns. So that's the way we're going to look at this this morning in verses 1 to 3, Christ's book. In verses 4 to 6, Christ's people. And then verses 7 and 8, Christ's return. Let's take it on its parts now, having already heard the, the text read. Verses 1 to 3, I'll read it afresh as we take a look at what kind of book this is, Christ's book. It begins with apocalypsis in Greek or Revelation, we add the definite article, the, so it makes sense in English. Revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice right off, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ, not of John, the apostle, but we'll get to that. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel, so now there's an angel in the equation, to his servant John, so now John the apostle is in the equation, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw, all that he saw. He's seeing something. This John, who's exiled on the Isle of Patmos for sharing the gospel, an old man now. He's seeing very well with dim eyes. Verse 3, blessed, blessed being the first of seven beatitudes in this book. Sounds like Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek. There's seven times this kind of... This kind of language pattern is used in Revelation. This is the first one. Blessed is what? What kind of person is blessed of God? It's the person who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, this might be a good time to just step back. This first point's about Christ's book, and obviously we're bookish people around here, but this whole thing is Christ's book. This whole thing's Christ's book. This is the last book of the Bible that you've turned to. And there are 404 verses in it. If you want to take notes in this series in a little journal that's just for Revelation, you can pick one of these up for $5 at the bookstall. It's a Revelation Scripture journal, and it has room inside of it for you to read the text and then take notes on the side and read the text and take notes. So if you want to do that, just pick one up and and pay attention there and copy your notes from today in there and use that. Uh, the Revelation of John. But I want to make sure that, that you understand those 404 verses in those 22 chapters Though it's the end of our Bible, it is interacting with the totality of our Bible. In fact, by one commentator's count, there are more allusions to the Old Testament in Revelation than there are verses. More than 404. Another commentator thinks there's 278. Another commentator thinks there's 400. But at any rate, there are hundreds of allusions to the Old Testament. Some of them are obvious to spot. Some of them, you kind of have to think about it. But it's pretty obvious that the final book of this book of books is very concerned with the other 65 books within it. 
as Christ's book. There's a continuity in the canon. It certainly also alludes to or references the Gospels before it. Matthew and John in our text today are in view with the transfiguration as well as the the Lamb of God. Um, John being the author, I believe, of this last book of the Bible and also being the author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John as well as the Gospel of John, you can see some overlap in language usage with references to Christ as the Word and as the Lamb between the Gospel of John and now the Revelation that John writes down. He writes what he sees and hears. So that is kind of an overview of how this is a book of books. I want to share a couple things, more things about books while I'm on the subject. Uh, there, is, um, there is a book, it's, really, it's a more of a study guide that I posted online today earlier. It's a free study guide to the book of Revelation by Ver, Dr. Vern Poitras. And it's free. It's 125 pages. There's a digital copy online. And if you don't have access to our Facebook page for some reason, just contact our office and we'll help you get a copy of this. But it's really good. What it has inside of it is verse-by-verse questions. So you can do family study or personal study as you're going through Revelation. So like today, who is the human author? Um, To whom is the book addressed? What benefit is promised? So it's just really good interactive questions for this whole uh, study. So I'll make that known to you there. Study Guide to the Book of Revelation by Vern uh, Poitras. I'll mention one more book, and I don't really recommend necessarily you read this book right now, but I want you to know that it exists because it's in the backdrop of the early part of this book. It's a book by Dr. Robert Plummer. It's titled 40 Questions About Interpreting the Bible. I believe we may have a copy or two at the bookstall, but that's not my point in committing it to you. It's not so you go out and buy it unless it just interests you. What I want you to understand about this, I'll drop my, my stuff out of here, is that in these 40 questions about interpreting the Bible, what Dr. Plummer does is give you a people's hermeneutics, hermeneutics course from Bible college. What that means is there are different kinds of literature within the Bible. There's poetry, and there's prophecy, and there's letters, and there's Old Testament narratives, and there's, there's literature within the gospel that covers a certain range. There's, there's wisdom literature, like the Psalms, and uh, there's, there's uh, the law that's in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And, and within that, the genres, there are subgenres, and so he does a pretty good job of laying that out in here. And my reason for referencing that with you right at this moment is of all those genres that I just mentioned, Revelation has three different types of literature within it, three different genres. The first one is the, is the obvious one, and it's in the very first word of the book, apox- apocalypse. Apocalypsis is the Greek word that's translated here as apocalypse, or is it, it's actually translated revelation. It means disclosure, but it's the apocalypse of John or the revelation of John. You see that in the very first word of this book. Apocalypse is a literary genre. Also, this book is referred to in verse 3 as a prophecy. It's a prophecy of prophecies. It's a climax of the prophecies of the Bible. And as I've already said, this book references Old Testament prophecies extremely frequently, extremely frequently. In fact, I'll share this with you. I can find it. Vodi Bakum has a good sermon series on Revelation. And, and he says this, he says, we, we uh, need to understand that of the 404 verses in Revelation, there may be 500 allusions to the Old Testament. He says, John alludes to nearly every book in the Old Testament canon, the Old Covenant Scriptures. Most of the references are from Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. So if we're going to preach in the Old Testament, generally we preach narratives or stories and character studies, but this book thrusts us into the prophetic elements of Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. 
And we tend, by averages, not to spend as much time in the Old Testament prophets as the other beloved books. So Revelation thrusts us on the scene of the prophetic aspects of these books as this literature is for us and for our good as believers. Per verse, by average, the most interacted with book in the Old Testament prophecy is the book of Daniel. And later in the sermon, we will cite a verse or two from Daniel today especially Daniel chapter 7, which we're going to cite today. So, in this first point, we're looking at what kind of book this is. What kind of book is it? Well, it's Christ's book. It's interacting with the entire book of books, the Bible. And this book of Christ is given to us. The Father is pleased to give it to us by the Son, through the angel, to John, to us. And so there's a kind of a a pattern. There's a bit of a, of a parade of explanation in our text today of how we get this book. It's probably worth thinking about how we got this book before we consider the whole and entire book. So let me tell you how MacArthur interacts with this. He says, four times the author identifies himself as John. In John 1, 1 and 1, 4 and verse 9 and then again in chapter 22. Early tradition identified him as John the Apostle. For example, second-century witnesses to the Apostle John's authorship include Justin Martyr, Martyr and Church Father Irenaeus. In this authorship of, by John the Apostle of Revelation, as far as writing it down, he didn't just write what he heard, he wrote what he saw. Revelation is likely written in the last decade of the first century, though some will date it to the reign of Nero in the A.D. 60s. Most will date it to the reign of Domitian, who died at 44 years old because he was such a horrible emperor, and he killed a whole bunch of Christians. Emperor Domitian died in A.D. 96, and most people will date this just prior to that in A.D. 95. And you might say, well, why does that matter? Well, you're going to see. The dating of the book of Revelation is going to bring some bearing on the interpretation of the book of Revelation. So there's a big difference between the A.D. 60s and the A.D. 90s. Now, with that in mind, Revelation begins with John, the last surviving apostle, with a big A. He's an old man now. He was recruited as an apostle as a very young man. You may remember some of the frivolous behavior of John via his mother. Do you remember the sons of Zebedee and how the mother wanted John to be uh, first amongst all the, the followers? And Jesus ends that passage in Matthew 20, if you'd like to go read it. Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man didn't come to be served but to serve and to offer himself as a ransom for many is the way Mark furthers that verse. The thing about it is, is John at this point has learned that lesson. He's now defined as a servant. And he's a servant who's willing to die for the cause. In fact, we believe that he's been imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos. And Revelation 2 records that one of the pastors has already been killed for his faithful witness to the faithful witness, that is Jesus Christ. So the historical context is John is exiled to a prisoner's island of Patmos on the Lord's Day on Sunday, where he's probably not able to gather with the saints at Ephesus like he had been doing. And an imprisoned John gets this vision as an old man. Now keep in mind this is the first century. There's no planes, trains, automobiles, penicillin, or eyeglasses. This guy probably can't see the best. He probably can't hear the best if he's in his 80s. And you imagine now, what is it that this book begins with? Grandpa John the Apostle seeing, hearing. You understand? Significant. It should be a significant response, a sensory response for you as you consider that. MacArthur continues, he says that 
Revelation begins with John, the last surviving apostle, an old man in exile on a small barren island of Patmos, which is located in the Aegean Sea, southwest of Ephesus, a prisoner's island. The Roman authorities likely banished him because of his faithful preaching of the gospel. And it's there that John received a series of visions and laid out the future history of the world. When he was arrested, John was in Ephesus ministering to the church there and in the surrounding cities, seeking to strengthen those congregations. He could no longer minister to them in person. And he followed the divine command that's listed in Revelation chapter 1, and he addressed Revelation to them. So there is an original context for this letter that needs to be taken into consideration as you're interpreting it. This was written to the churches in the first century. I'm advocating in the last decade of the first century, churches that had now had time to give way to the false teachings of the Nicolaitans, those that had been facing persecution and sometimes compromised from within. They were weary. They were worried about conquest and the evilness of the leaders of their day, the emperor and all of his minions. And so this book has all that in the backdrop, from moral compromise to conquest, and John addresses this, this to the churches to encourage them, but it's wholly from God. God gives it. It's clearly God's Word. It's Christ's book, which is our first point here. The storm of persecution broke out in full fury. And in fact, we're going to find out in our second point momentarily a little bit about these churches, but I'll pause on that point for now to finish this one. Christ will come in glory to judge and to rule, and this First, these first three verses lead us into that thought process, and we need to understand what type of literature it is. This is an apocalyptic, prophetic book with a little bit of lettering smattered in, which is going to come here in just a moment. It's a letter to the seven churches. I want to say just a little bit more about the nature of Christ's book here. It says in this first little section that this must soon take place, or the time is near. You see that in verse 1 and verse 3 if you look down at it and underline it. There's a lot made about interpretation based on what that means. It must soon take place. It's near. What exactly does that mean? Well, I'm going to take, as seven will be a popular term, an often used term in Revelation, I'm going to take like a seven-point acrostic to try to just import to you what any good introduction to the book of Revelation will do. Now, I would urge you to go track this down on your own and study it. If you have an English Standard Version study Bible, these seven quick little hitters I'm going to give you are in there. Uh, it's really important to a depth of study of Revelation that you catch these seven things. So it's, His farm produces ice pap, if you want to write that down. His farm produces ice pap. It's really not His farm produces ice. That's just how me and the kids memorized H, F, P, I, which is the first letter in each of the four schools of interpretation of Revelation. So if you haven't written this down yet, I think you should, unless you're already fluent in this stuff. His farm produces ice pap. This apocalyptic book is interpreted based on what time it is or when it was written and who it is for most directly and what's happening when. There are four schools of interpretation for this. It's his farm produces ice or differently, historicists, futurists, preterists, and idealists, H. FPI. So you write historicists, futurists, preterists, and idealists. And we just remember those first letters with his farm produces ice. Historicists think that it's been happening. It's been happening all along, literally. It's been happening. A lot of it's happened. Futurists 
think most of it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's out there in the future. Preterists think a lot of the stuff happened to the original audience in the early church. And some preterists will even date this book in the A.D. 60s to accommodate that view. Preterist, partial preterism. Not that it's all taken place, but most of it has. And then finally, idealism or idealists. And idealists think it's been happening symbolically all along. So they would have that in common with the historicists. HFPI, in these views, I think there are things to be valued from each of them. But if you're staunchly in one of these categories, it's going to shape how you read the book of Revelation. Now, these next three in the acrostic, PAP, is premillennial, amillennial, and postmillennial, PAP. This really doesn't become important until you get to Revelation 20, where you have to figure out what to do with the millennial reign of Christ. But I want to bring it up now because it's so often kicked around like a theological football when we talk about the doctrine of the last things or what theologians like to call eschatology by the Greek word eschatos, end times, last things. And so pap is often thrown around, but we're not really going to deal with that thoroughly until we come later in the book. But just very simply, premillennialism, Revelation 20, is yet to happen. It will happen. Amillennialism, Revelation 20, is figuratively happening already. And then postmillennialism, Revelation 20, is happening right now. So your question is, is the tribulation yet to come? Uh, it's a question that's implied in this book, and it is a question. And so you can learn from all of these. You're probably going to fall firmly in a camp. And like I said, the English Standard Version Study Bible will guide you along with that. Um, now, some of you are bothered already because uh, some of you are really bothered that I'm not standing on some position right now. And I'm going to tell you exactly why I'm not. Our Constitution says that you have to believe in the Trinity in order to be a member of this church. And you say, well, why is that so important? I'm about to show you. It's right here in this text. It is absolutely essential. It's right here in Revelation 1, 1 to 8. The Trinity is central. Our Constitution doesn't say anything about your eschatology. It just says that you have to believe in the return of Christ. It doesn't say that you have to be his farm produces ice or anything on the pap. It doesn't say that. So I'm not going to bind your conscience there. You say, well, then how do you even preach a book like Revelation? Well, I'm going to teach and preach through it as the Lord helps me to understand it and as we understand it together. And at times, I will lean certain ways. There's no doubt about that. There's no way not to have a conviction or if at least an opinion on certain things. But eclectic is probably the best word. I see things in all of these views that are to be desired. I see that there's clearly things that haven't taken place yet for the futurists. Clearly, there's things that haven't taken place yet. I see there's been a whole lot of persecution of the church in the past that has taken place. A lot of things have been done. Um, And I think that there was a context in which this was written in the first century A.D. that was clearly the context. We're going to see that with our shorter but second point in just a moment with the seven churches, the circular letter. So I think idealism understands the imagery and the symbols of Revelation, which there clearly are. If you read the whole Bible and you see the way the images are used throughout the Bible, you understand as well as reading by reading some of the early or the the uh, the literature from between the canons. What you can find is the idea of apocalyptic literature used images to make a point. But if you make too much of the image, you miss the point. Remember, more like a picture than a puzzle. And so I see things there with idealism as well. And um, I think I left out something. Historicists. Well, 
clearly, along with that, a lot of things have happened. Uh, that would go with the preterist in that way. So I invite you into this study with me. We are people of the book. We read books because God gave us a book. Amen? That's how we got here. So we, we have to take issue with God if we decide that we don't want to be uh, studious or, or whatnot. So more, I'm sure, could be said on this first point about Christ's book, but we desperately need to move to the second one in the interest of time. So what kind of book it is, it's Christ's book. Our second question is, what kind of people are we? Well, I mean, the implied answer, of course, is that we are Christ's people, right? That's the implied answer. But listen afresh to verses 4 through 6 as we seek to elucidate this point. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests, our kingdom priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, I couldn't even help myself. I quoted First Peter 2 as I was reading Revelation, because it sounds so much alike, is with regard to the kingdom of priests. If I took you, every time there's a, an allusion or a reference to another part of the Bible in Revelation, if I took you there, we'd never get through Revelation. So you just kind of see. Uh, you probably hear uh, Hebrews 13, 8 in there. Jesus was the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, here it's stated not with the yesterday being put in the prime of place in the listing, but the current present. They need to know that Jesus is and was and is to come. So they kind of flipped that from Hebrews 13.8. The nuances are, are everywhere. It really just should, though, cause you to just pump the brakes and say, wow, this is, this is the Lord's book. Like, He gave us this. Like, we couldn't have quite put all this together. Now, could we? And John's just in awe. He's tempted to worship an angel, and then he doesn't. And say, hey, don't worship me. That's in this book, too. Uh, you need to worship you know, the Lord, not me. And, you know, that's always the case. Fear not, get up, this kind of stuff going on whenever there's a, a, a God sighting. And that, that's certainly what's going on here. John sees the Lord as an old man with dim eyes and, and uh, hard of hearing, probably. He sees the Lord. And we get to this second point where we talk just not about the book, but also about Christ's people, Christ's church and Christ's work before we get to Christ's return. This is where the genre of literature, the letter or the epistle, the opening to an epistle is, is obvious in verse 4. John to the seven churches who are in Asia. Now, he doesn't labor the point, but he does give them epistle or narrative and teaching type literature. Not narrative, rather, but teaching type literature. Look at the beatitude that's there. It's kind of a surprising placement, I think, uh, for, the, for the reader. It says in verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud and keeps his prophecy. Blessed is him who hears and keeps what is written. So an application here for the churches as he's greeting them and encouraging them is that when this is read aloud, most of them wouldn't have had print copies of this back then. It had been very hard to get a print copy. So as this print copy is read aloud to the churches by the lector, by the preacher on the day of the Lord, as it's read aloud, the person will be blessed if they hear it and they do it. Sounds a lot like James, doesn't it? Don't just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Faith that works. Not faith, not, not, we're not justified by our works, but justification does work. It's a faith that works. And so we're involved in laboring as servants of the Lord, not to be served, but to serve. And blessed is he who hears the words of this book in the church setting and then does it or applies it. That's a lot about what we're doing here. As we're, we're standing up, we're reading this letter, and then we're trying to figure out how to apply it to our lives. And we're blessed if we do it. And the converse is we're not blessed if we don't. 
So kind of an implied challenge here within this is, as God's people, will we take seriously the command of the Lord to do what we're learning? Will we do it? Will we keep the Word? As the Great Commission says, will we observe all the Lord has commanded us? And so be blessed. This letter to uh, dissemination centers in Asia Minor was not disseminated in the modern continent of Asia. It says in verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Asia would be Asia Minor, and this would be modern-day Turkey. It would have circulated there. And those seven churches kind of form a circle. The context of seven, if you think about the, the days of creation, there are seven of them in Genesis, the context of seven is complete. A complete letter to the complete church. So clearly, here we have the universal church in view, because this church is for all, this letter is for all churches everywhere and all times. But we also have the importance of the local church in view, where these things are meted out, where the scriptures are actually read, these seven churches that would have heard it. We get in trouble when we think of ourselves either as strictly a part of the universal church or strictly a part of the local church. Bible doctrine teaches us both. And I think, honestly, your doctrine of the church is probably more important than your doctrine of end times. I think you can be more certain with it. It's important to think in terms of first, second, and third order doctrines. I've already mentioned the Trinity. I'm now mentioning the church. And I'm going to be talking about eschatology a lot, which we allow for freedom of conscience. There's no binding going on with your eschatological view in this church, and so long as it's one of those four orthodox views, his farm produces ice. But what I would say with this is that, um, did I lose it? Am I not here? What did I do? Go blank. Let me, I can grab this yellow mic. Oh, no, there you go. You found me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I'm lying. I don't know what happened. I didn't, I didn't touch anything. I didn't touch a thing, brother. Not a thing. So at any rate, all right, thank you. Point number two, after Christ's book is Christ's people. So let's recalibrate with this and finish this point. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, not the continent, but Turkey itself, grace to you and peace to him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Now, this here being sent to the churches. Yeah, I'll just grab this. Yeah, I'll just grab this. So, so these here that are being sent to the churches, the seven churches in Asia, is for all churches in all time. It's for all of us. So in this sense, it has a letter genre to it as well. And it says, grace and peace to him who was and is and is to come. Now, if you glance down at verse 8, you're going to see that phrase again with the present tense coming first. It says, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, this is a statement of Trinity, if there ever was one, because this is attributed to the Father in verse 4. It's attributed to the Son in verse 8. So this is a beautiful uh, praise including the word amen. It's also a prayer, which all prayer is really is our admission to the Lord of our great need of him. So this apocalypse, this revelation, is a letter as well as a climax of all the prophecies of the Bible, as well as to be understood as an apocalypse. Christ's book guides Christ's people. That's how it's supposed to be. It's how it is. Christ's book guiding Christ's people. Now, when it says here within this this section grace and peace to you. And then it says the seven spirits. Scholars believe that the seven spirits, again, the number seven, you see how 
how replete this book is with that number. The seven spirits describes the complete spirit, the Holy Spirit. And there's quite a lot of ink spilt on how to get there, but the seven spirits is really referencing the, whole, the one Holy Spirit. And so you see this, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit there in this text. And it says in verse 5, from Jesus Christ, who then is, is described, his work is described. It's, it's rapid-fire listing, praising the work of Christ as we're observing the person of Christ. So, so just, just look at it. It's, it's, it's rapid fire. He's a witness. Unlike us who sometimes unfaithful, he's always faithful as a witness or a martyr for the faith. He is firstborn, which means there's going to be some come after him that resurrect from the dead, that don't stay dead, that live forever in their glorified body. That's us. That's the believer. So he's a firstborn among the resurrected of the dead. He's the ruler with a big R. He's a ruler of rulers. Other places, a king of kings. He is, he is the sovereign ruler of the universe. And there is no authority on earth that is senior to Jesus. He's the ruler. He loves us. He offers us peace in the kingdom come. And he calls us to grace and by grace. He has freed us from the grip of our sin. I thought about just preaching this verse only in this sermon, but I thought we'd get bogged down in the details. But, I mean, this is a beautiful picture of the work of Christ. He's freed us from sin, saved to sin no more. He's freed us from the grips and the binding and the, the, the chains of sin. And he's not just done us so that we can set and sulk. He's freed us from sin to make us priests. He's using language used for Israel in Exodus 19.6 to describe what we are now as a kingdom of priests. First Peter says it as well, but here we see it in Revelation chapter 1, that we are indeed, verse 6, a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. So we have a role to play now and forevermore under his wonderful rule. So there's this continuity between the Testaments and these promises of God with every yes being found in Jesus Christ, every promise of God finding its yes in Jesus. And so John is, in, is breaking out in doxology and praise because of the goodness of who Christ is, and his, his rule is firm. And they needed to hear this because they, they saw a whole lot of powerful rulers in the world that weren't very just, and we see that today, and we need to see that, and especially in the persecuted church, parts of the world where blood is shed for faith in Christ. They need to hear this. This is very important for them, and we need to pray it over them, and we need to be encouraged by it and hope that they're encouraged by it too. And also just the marginalization and the sanction that we face economically and socially for our deeply held religious beliefs in Christ and his kingdom come. We need to be prepared to be encouraged by this. John's not getting chippy with the rulers of the day that are so evil. He's concerned that they'll know him as Savior before they know him as judge. He's deeply concerned, and we should be too. We should be too. It's hard to pass by the second point without just underscoring how important the local church is in the life of the Christian. I mean, the last book of the Bible, so debated and disputed, opens with the fact that it's supposed to be read by a reader in local churches. That's the whole point. It's easily lost on us, and so it needs to be said that the grace and peace is offered by the reader of the Scripture to the early church, and it's here for us incomplete now, as complete now. Seven is a number of completion. It is mentioned, I forgot just how many times, but dozens of times in the book of Revelation. And so there is a, there's a symbol, there's an image within that number of seven, a number of completion. 
the spirits here, the number of churches in Asia Minor here. And um, I think it's probably worthwhile to say then that our third point comes out of our second point. After Christ's book and Christ's people, we find Christ's return in this text. Stephen Gregg writes this. He says, In calling Jesus the ruler over kings of the earth, John is lifting the horizon of his readers' perspective above the earthly rulers, some of whom may have been the visible source of their sufferings. And he's lifting their eyes to him who sits enthroned above the kings of the earth, exercising absolute sovereignty over them. In times of persecution, the kings of the earth who set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed loom large in the view of the afflicted church. But when the veil is pulled aside, as it is here, to reveal the one who sits in the heavens and laughs, as Psalm 2.4 says, who has not relinquished not one part of his sovereignty to ten-horned tyrants, the church takes courage and comfort, and such encouragement may be the principal reason God sent these visions to the exile on Patmos originally, to this old man, this apostle, this last living apostle. So now, let us consider this last and final point, this third point, Christ's return. Christ's return. There is an imperative verb, do behold, behold. It's the only imperative verb in the whole passage. It's in verse 7. It says, look, he's coming on the clouds. And so as you're thinking about this, you should consider the transfiguration in Matthew 16, that you would see the Son of Man coming. But you should also consider the book of Daniel. And so we're going to turn there now, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I told you we do one reference here. I think this is the, the one that we're going to make sure we get. And I'll, I'll read it to you. I have it marked. It may take you longer to get there. But the book of Daniel, in your Old Testament, it says in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, similar language. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all that all people's nations and languages should serve him, servants of him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, Daniel, bringing this to the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, is saying something that's futuristic. And it seems that John, the apostle, with this vision that he's seeing, is picking up on Daniel 7, 13, and 14, and what he's writing in Revelation 1, 7, and 8. So Daniel 7, 13, and 14 finds its fulfillment in Christ. Zechariah finds its fulfillment as well. Verse 7 says, every eye will see. That's an allusion to Zechariah 12.10 in John's writings. There will be no hiding for unbelievers then. There will be mourning and wailing. There will be crying. These are not tears of joy, but tears by the person that is caught, that is guilty, with punishment looming. Think of a defendant that can't lie anymore. There's no more chance to, slide, to strike a plea deal. The verdict has been rendered and justice will be served. And we, as counterintuitive as it may seem, we are to say amen. The positive particle, yes, is used before the word amen. So be it, Lord. Yes, amen. Implausible, really, when you stop and think about it. Just as much as we are to, in many situations, turn the other cheek, 
testify to the goodness of Jesus Christ in this life, to which we're to consider matters of conscience as we live to the praise of his glory and oftentimes don't get the good side of the deal because of it. We are to actually then celebrate the justice of Christ when he comes and levies judgment against the people that see him and didn't trust him. And there's a whole lot of applications within this as his servants, as his doers of the word, and so on. But one application is our hearts take the gospel to the nations now. This is almost like a like it's like the opposite of evangelism in a sense, because it says here that people from every tribal wail, and commentators are uniform that this is about judgment. It's not about some kind of good crying. This is a bad crying. This is a I'm I'm hopeless crying. These are people that continue to blame the Lord and never worship Him. But it's interesting that every tribe, every tribe and tongue, every nation, if you want to think of it that way, some would consider it the tribes of Israel, but that's another discussion altogether. I think clearly the range of meaning is broad. That's how we're supposed to take the gospel, isn't it? To every tribe and tongue. The Lord's going to redeem for Himself people from every tribe, right? That's how the Bible ends. But how does Revelation begin? But there's also going to be people from every people group, from every tribe that don't know Jesus. And at the return of Christ, they're not going to be able to look busy and turn, turn their head away and not have to face it. They're going to face it. The exclusivism of the gospel, chickens will come home to roost right in front of them right then and there. And it will for you, friend. I want everybody hearing the sound of my voice to understand this morning. The pettiness of the things we concern ourselves with compared to knowing Christ on the day of judgment, it's just that, it's petty. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, one day you're going to face him and know him as judge. And he is going to righteously judge you and say, depart from me, I never knew you, and you will not spend eternity with him. You will get exactly what you want, separation from Jesus. And I'm going to tell you this right now. Separation from God is not good. It's not what you really should want, even if you think you want it. You say, well, I, don't, I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to cry on the day of the Lord. Then receive him now in joy and gladness. Join our worship now. It, it, it isn't a complicated thing, but it is a will thing. You surrender your will to Christ. You say, not my will, but thine be done. I want to walk with you. Not perfectly, no, but willfully, yes. This text has in view the right judgment of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the ruler of rulers. Looking and pulling together prophecy from the entire Bible, it says every eye will see. There'll be no place to hide. Everybody will see him coming in. And he's going to be the fulfillment of all prophecy in all time. And we are embracing the just judgment of God as we read this and say to the praise of his glory. It's a call to missions for us. Same as it's a call to purity and to endurance for us. Same as it's encouragement for us. It's a painful truism that demands our action in sharing the gospel here, there, and all over the world. The last verse here contains a language phenomenon called mirrorism. You ever heard the phrase like, I've searched high and low for you. You ever heard that before? Well, that's what the alpha and the omega is. It's the A and the Z of the English alphabet. In Greek, would be alpha and omega. So 
I am, the Alpha and the Omega, it bears a little bit of unpacking. Alpha and Omega, A to Z, would be complete, kind of like seven, the total thing. But it begins with, in Greek, egoimi, I am. And it is hearkening back to the Exodus itself in Exodus 3, where the Lord appears in the burning bush, and Moses wants to get a name, right? He wants to get a, a report on what's going on around him. And remember how the Lord says, he says, I will be who I will be, or I am who I am, egoimi, I am who I am, egoimi. That's how this is reading. It's, it's Jesus is saying, I am he. He's, it's a claim to divinity. It's a claim to authority. All authority has been, been given him. It's a claim to his almightiness. And this is now talking in the who is and was and who is to come, not just about God the Father, but also about God the Son here. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the A to the Z. Amirism is a language phenomenon when you take the beginning of a thing and the end of a thing or the extremes of a thing, high and low, to say and, and communicate the totality of it. I've searched high and low for you. It's the A to Z. It's the, uh, the A to Z of the Greek alphabet. I am, I am now, I was, I will be. It's a Trinitarian-type affirmation here, too, with the Father, Son, and Spirit undergirding this entire passage. And all the words in all of history belong to God. Language belongs to God. Everything that has been said and will be said, his word doesn't pass away. The A to the Z is his. He, he is over space, time, and communication. You remember when the Lord created the earth, how did he do it? He did it by speaking words. He spoke and it was. The Bible ends where it begins in so many ways. He is mighty. And this is an invitation for you to trust him, to give him glory, to speak of his dominion, not just now, but forevermore, not just over a little bit, but over everything, everything always and forever. He is the great I am. This reveals Christ's book. This text reveals that it's for Christ's people, his church. And it is for us until he returns. He's coming again on the clouds, and nobody will be able to deny it. Everybody will see it. It's filled with images and repetition, with lots of opportunity for interpretation and thinking and learning. This book is about Christ, and it's for us, and we need it to be read aloud in the here and in the now that we might persevere in our hardships, that we might be pure before the Lord, that we might walk with him all the days of our life, that we might find comfort when we failed that we might understand that he's forgiven us from our sins proactively. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That we might, that we might, that we might, that we might, that we might not lose heart for sharing the gospel with the nations. That we might not lose heart with sacrificing that the Lord's work might go forward. That we might, that we might, that we might, that we might have assurance greatly of eternal life. And amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we lift before you our needs as your people in your book waiting on your return. We want everybody that we know to know you as Savior and not to face you as judge. And we ask that you'd help us to be a part of that mission in the here and now. In Jesus' name, amen.